doesn't matter what your politics are. People want friends. People want family. They want strong relationships. Nobody wants to be lonely. And that's why what I call the weaponization of loneliness is so effective. In this episode, I sit down with Stella Morabito, a senior contributor at The Federalist. She's a former CIA intelligence analyst who studied the psychology behind Soviet Union propaganda. It doesn't even matter how fringy a, an idea is. If you keep injecting it into public discourse over and over and over again, you create this cascade of public opinion and people will go along with it primarily for reputational reasons. It all depends on who speaks and who remains silent. We discuss her latest book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, How Tyrants Stoke Our Fear of Isolation to Silence, Divide, and Conquer. People aren't terrorized as easily if they have strong bonds of relationships, and that's why the private sphere has always been such a target of tyrants, because that's where our power lies. That's where we get the strength to deal with so much of what comes at us in life. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kellek. Before we start, I'd like to take a moment to thank the sponsor of our podcast, American Hartford Gold. As you all know, inflation is getting worse. The Fed raised rates for the fifth time this year, and Fed Chairman Jerome Powell is telling Americans to brace themselves for potentially more pain ahead. But there is one way to hedge against inflation. American Hartford Gold makes it simple and easy to diversify your savings and retirement accounts with physical gold and silver. With one short phone call, they can have physical gold and silver delivered right to your door or inside your IRA or 401k. American Hartford Gold is one of the highest rated firms in the country with an A-plus rating with the Better Business Bureau and thousands of satisfied clients. If you call them right now, they'll give you up to $2,500 of free silver and a free safe on qualifying orders. Call 855-862-3377, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Again, that's 855-862-3377, or text AMERICAN to 65532. Stella Morabito, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Thank you. It's really great to be here. Stella, viewers of American Thought Leaders will know there's something I like to talk about often, which is something I call the megaphone, the mechanism that is used to manufacture perceived consensus in society, something that I think has profound importance. Um, in all the di social dynamics that we're seeing today. But prior to having read your book, I didn't understand how it worked. And now I do. And you know what I'm talking about. So why don't we start there? Oh, my. Well, thank you. And again, it's really great to be here with you, Jan. Uh, I love the show. Um, the megaphone. Uh, the way I would, I would uh, view that is as propaganda combined with political correctness to produce that illusion, that illusion of unanimity, that illusion of consensus. And um, how does this work? I mean, why do so many people fall in line with it? And how do the people pushing a propagandistic narrative get away with it? These are the two questions that have really been driving my um, 
you know, my, the purpose of writing this book, The Weaponization of Loneliness. And the way it works really is that we have as human beings, all of us, I believe without exception, have uh, a hardwired need to connect with other people. We really can't survive in isolation. And, um, and, and along with that, the flip side of that is a uh, primal fear of ostracism. And so the megaphone hopper, you know, really those who apply this megaphone, the, the propaganda and political correctness, operate something I call the machinery of loneliness that triggers this conformity impulse and this need to obey whatever we perceive as a consensus, even if it's not really the consensus. That is, I mean, that in a nutshell is, I, I believe, how it works. I didn't realize until the last while, okay, how powerful our need to belong is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I've, I've actually mentioned this probably on the show, but certainly to countless people, I didn't realize and how that could be actually a central organizing principle. It's not necessarily obvious that this would be such an important thing. Right. 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 And I think it's instinctive. I mean, I think we are kind of, a, we're aware to a certain extent, for example, maybe we don't want to say something because we're afraid we're going to be, oh, they're going to judge us or be rejected, even if it's just an innocent idea or opinion, if we think that that goes against the grain, that goes against, that's politically incorrect. And so this hardwired impulse to conform and, you know, is de definitely related to our need to belong and our intense fear of ostracism because we can't survive in isolation as human beings, uh, severe isolation. And that, that works within us and, and it has a huge effect on society, on civil society especially, uh, if people keep falling in line with a narrative or a megaphone that only creates an illusion of, um, of consensus. Uh, when the consensus isn't really there, when people aren't really talking to one another because they're fearful of saying the wrong thing. And this affects people on every level. I mean, of course, children are highly suggestible to that. You know, it can be operated by tyrants of all stripes. For example, uh, you know, a toxic boss or a cult leader like Jim Jones, actually, uh, for your viewers who might recall in 1978, he convinced almost a thousand people in his cult in Jonestown, Guyana to commit what he called revolutionary suicide. And so it's an extremely powerful, extremely, but natural impulse. And the only way around that is to have strong relationships that you can fall back in in private life, in the private sphere of life. Uh, if you have family who you can, or, or friends, really good friends, and, and because people might have a private sphere of life and private relationships uh, that they can fall back on, this is why the private sphere of life has become such a target for tyrants and totalitarians and has always been. I mean, it's why uh, the Communist Manifesto in 1848 had that uh, proclamation abolish the family as a big part of, of the uh, agenda. Uh, so loyalties on a personal level are very threatening to those who uh, want to achieve power and, and, and control, social control, social engineering. You know, it, it's something that I felt this dynamic, these dynamics, were not 
explored deeply enough. That's why I wrote the book, The Weaponization of Loneliness, because that's what it amounts to, is weaponizing our fear of being alone, weaponize, and, and threatening loneliness upon us if we don't get with whatever program, um, whoever, you know, whatever said totalitarian wants us to, to uh, focus on. It's fascinating also that the way our technology seems to have developed, for example, through social media, there's a kind of an illusion or perception of community which often doesn't, exact, doesn't really exist. It's like it feeds some of that impulse, but it doesn't provide this exact part, the, 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 the private sphere of life, which you say is so critical. Oh, yes, absolutely. Now, what we're headed towards feels like a new kind of what we call, might call technocratic totalitarianism, where you uh, have with new communications technologies and you know the ability for surveillance like we've never had before. Uh, even, you can read about different things like what they call kill switches on vehicles, where if you are viewed as maybe having uh, you know, broken the law or, you know, not even broken the law, but uh, for whatever reason, you can have your vehicle disabled. I mean, these kinds of uh, technologies that are being developed uh, are all about social control. And, uh, and, and they all seem to attack our private sphere of life or those uh, conversations, those relationships from which we get our strength. I mean, um, Václav Havel, who wrote The Power of the Powerless in 1978, pointed out that our power really comes from what he called the hidden sphere of life, that hidden sphere that totalitarians couldn't quite get their hands on. And, and they want to get their hands on it because, you know, if you, if you think we're in some kind of information war, I mean, if you think that controlling information is really important, to um, whatever powers that be, well, the first thing they're going to, want to do is make sure that whatever we say to one another, even one-on-one, -on -one, is controlled somehow, right? I mean, th that's always how totalitarian systems work. Well, I'm going to jump in here because you mentioned at the beginning, you mentioned propaganda plus political correctness yes. equals megaphone, if I believe. And political correctness, it's sort of this, this amorphous thing, but as you were saying this just now, it, it's a method of speech control, isn't it? Just simply. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In fact, I discuss in my book um, what I call the machinery of loneliness, and it has three main components, and I suppose I would add those to the megaphone. And uh, the three main components are identity politics, which serves to erase us as individuals and just classify us and pigeonhole us according to whether it's a victim status or oppressor status. Second, political correctness, which is a process by which, um, you know, that induces self-censorship. Uh, it's, uh, you know, it's a process by which one-sided propaganda, particularly in one uh, party states, can uh, control what's said, what's discussed, uh, by injecting that fear of rejection if you say the wrong thing. So identity politics, political correctness, and what's the third? The third is mob agitation. Uh, the mobs, you know, mo uh, which we see on social media, 
but mobs, you know, can be street mobs like Antifa. They can be, uh, you know, uh, human resources department uh, bureaucrats. Uh, they can take many different forms, but they all serve to um, enforce political correctness and identity politics, and of course, you know, the propaganda that's there to drive the agenda forward. This just struck me, right? And maybe this is obvious to everybody and it's just not obvious to me because often when I thought about political correctness, I thought about its fear of reprisal. But what you have come out and said in here is that it's not just fear of reprisal, although that exists, it's fear of rejection. Yes. Right? And fear of reprisal. Yes. And, and actually the fear of rejection might be greater and that, I don't know why that didn't dawn on me. That's obvious the moment you say it. But I, I think I know why, because we don't want to admit that, that we fear that. Exactly. Yeah, I think that's true. I mean, we want to yeah. feel like we're, you know, we're strong, we're, you know, we're able to withstand these kinds of social pressures. But these social pressures are very natural and very powerful. In fact, you know, I felt them, of course, and that's why I wrote the book, is because it puzzled me, it bothered me, uh, that so many, what I would call today, fringe uh, agendas are held up as just basically con conventional wisdom, uh, absurdities. Well, or exactly, that's what I was yeah. going to say, just concepts that are absurd on their face. If you sit down and think about it for a moment, but if you don't sit down and think about it for a moment, you can kind of roll with it. That's what I noticed in my own thinking. Mm -hmm. right? Oh, yeah. No, a lot of people are in that mode. That's why I wrote, partly why I wrote the book was to try to build an awareness of these dynamics and, you know, and how they operate within us and out through all of society. I mean, you know, how we behave or how we express ourselves, whether we know it or not, has an enormous impact on public opinion or the perception of public opinion. And uh, it, it, you know, whether we speak or don't speak about something uh, affects where, uh, you know, where an opinion or what we consider public opinion goes. And then you end up with public policy as a result of public opinion. And I was gonna say earlier that one of the, the um, most incredible things about the power and the naturalness of that fear of ostracism. As you can see it, not just in you know, those examples I gave as a cult leader or a you know, toxic boss or a world-class dictator, but you can see it even here. I mean, senators, US senators are susceptible to it. I mean, they'll turn on their principles if they think that you know, uh, they need uh, that extra pat on the back. Nobody is really immune from it, especially if they haven't thought about it. So I'll add another thing. Just a few days ago, one of our producers brought to my attention uh, the spiral of silence, mm. which of course is in your book. And I'm going to tell you, get you to explain to me, because unfortunately the author is no longer with us to do so, what that is and how it works and how it's related again to this manufacturing of perceived consensus. So the spiral of silence uh, is a model that, uh, uh, about public opinion, the subtitle of the book written by Elizabeth Noel Newman, I think in 1980, um, our, uh, the spiral of silence, public opinion, our social skin. Uh, and she observed, she was um, a director of public opinion research center in Chicago, University of Chicago. 
She was observing uh, the uh, elections in uh, the federal, the, uh, the federal Republic of Germany at the time, you know, under uh, the, the free, you know, West Germany. And uh, there were two main parties there, Social Democrats and Christian Democrats. And she noticed how unexpectedly you would get uh, a shift in the election that made no sense based on the public opinion polling. And uh, that's because people remain silent about their views uh, on, you know, if they're going to vote for Christian Democrats, they didn't want anybody to know if it was considered politically incorrect at the time. And she, she noticed that. And, and, you know, so that's kind of, a, you know, part of the model was looking at those examples. But it applies. Uh, they call it the shy voter phenomenon uh, when Brexit passed 5248 in, in, in UK. And then, of course, uh, the 2016 presidential elections here came out uh, in a way that nobody expected. But, but that's the manifestation. But how does it, how does it work? It what works is that? because yeah. what happened, okay, so what, uh, as people shut up about what they believe or lie about what they believe in order to avoid ostracism, that affects public opinion polling. And we don't think about those things. We assume that people are just going to say what they believe when they're asked a question by a pollster. And uh, I think this is not true. And it all depends on who speaks, as Elizabeth Noel Newman said, and who remains silent. That's public opinion. It actually also creates a situation where not only are the people who are not being open, right, sort of hiding that fact, right, when the poll happens. But that phenomenon itself affects the overall opinion. Absolutely. Right? Absolutely. Yeah. And as Havel said in The Power of the Powerless, you don't necessarily even know what your neighbor thinks or believes unless you are, you're able to openly have conversations. And in a totalitarian system, uh, those conversations are suppressed. You may be surrounded by people who agree with you, but you don't know it, right? And, and that's, the, you know, that, that's the irony of it all. Political correctness. Mm -hmm. You know, we've been talking about it for decades mm -hmm. as something that's significant, something that's impacting behavior. What does it mean that it has such a profound impact on our social discourse now? The way I see political correctness is that it's really a form of agitation. Political correctness serves to you know, suppress ideas that are not in concert or not in agreement with the, with the general narrative. And of course, in order for that to work, you need to have at least a, a, a media monopoly or a near media monopoly for that to be most effective, because if people are exposed uh, from different media that are respected uh, to different ideas, they're more able to have real discourse. Uh, and, uh, and, and when you go against the grain on any of the issues that are promoted by, you know, by that media, and pop culture plays a huge part in that because you have what they call influencers today who are like, uh, idols, screen idols, or whatever, and people just kind of want to, you know, identify. They live kind of vicariously. It's what uh, Rod Robert Nisbet, who wrote The Quest for Community, called uh, pseudo-intimacy. 
that people get. And you know, and that also plays into the weaponization of loneliness. So when they you know, when people want to be associated vicariously or whatever else by these figures, like a, maybe a sports figure comes out with a political view or a, you know, a movie star, as well as media figures, and all of these forces are working together, especially with academia and all of the other institutions that seem to have become uh, captured by these narratives. Uh, then you know then people feel that the consensus is overwhelming uh, a lot of people will feel that way and will shut up even you know about what they believe or they'll start just really going with the beliefs that are presented to them whether they believe them or not they just accept them just kind of like through osmosis and and to go against that is extremely painful is extremely difficult a lot of times especially if you're in a group. And I talk about the conformity impulse, and an I give a whole, an entire chapter to uh, the conformity impulse and how obedient we tend to be uh, to it until we see other people who are willing to stand up. But we don't like to admit that we're conformists. And that, that, oh, absolutely I think that's, not. I think that's such a critical part, even right. to ourselves. Right. <laughs> even to ourselves, right? So you, I think you have uh, an example in there of one of these experiments, the kind of famous, I don't, I don't know if it was the Milgram, it was, I think it was a different experiment, but you cite a number of these mm -hmm. um, experiments that were done in the, in the 60s, I think. And something that breaks through, right, is when there's this, when there's this perceived conformity and everyone seems to agree, even though the researcher knows they don't, Right, but they, but the perception is there. But the moment one person stands up and says, "Hey, wait a sec," mm -hmm. right, that the numbers change dramatically. It takes that first person through the gate, that kind of breaks the spell a bit in a way. Right. right. Yeah. Right. Yes. Now the the first one that I mentioned, I mentioned Milgram also, but Solomon Ash in right. the early fifties, and Milgram was actually a student of his. But uh, he gave the, he had these experiments that just had to do with matching up the length of a line. You know, here's a, here's a line this length, tell me which of these three lines, you know, matches. And you get 99% accuracy with 99% of the population on it. It's a trivial question. But, you know, the subject all, you know, was surrounded by uh, collaborators who, the eight or nine of them, who would all give the wrong answer at a certain point. And the subject was, you know, having to kind of publicly declare what the correct answer was, and, and quite often, up to 40% of the time, would not, this was like 60 years ago, or 70, and would not, um, you know, would not uh, be able to, you know, give their correct answer. Even there's nothing political about it, nothing controversial. It was just that social pressure of having to give the correct answer when everybody else was, and he didn't know what, you know, why, but he must be wrong, or I'm, I'm just going to go along because I don't want to stick out like a sore thumb. But a variation of the experiment showed that when that subject was given a partner out of the eight or nine other collaborators who agreed, you know, beforehand with the correct answer, conformity dropped like a rock. And then, of course, if, you, if you're in a group, and one person speaks up and then someone else says, yeah. And, and then the next person, yeah. I mean, that breaks what 
Ash called the illusion of unanimity. And what you call the megaphone, this illusion of consensus, the same thing. And it's just really fascinating. And then Milgram, of course, was the um, student of Ash. And uh, there's a great movie or document. Well, it's not a documentary. It's a movie on, on Milgram and includes Ash called The Experimenter that your viewers might be interested in. Uh, it was just really fascinating that, um, you know, how, how they turned out. You know, he was trying to figure out if Americans could be as uh, brutal as the Germans were uh, during, you know, in, in Nazi, because they were having the uh, Nuremberg trials at the time, and, and uh, this is 1961. And so he, he, yeah, he had these experiments where one guy would be an actor pretending, you know, they'd have the shock machine, and the subject was a guy who had to give the questions to the, you know, the, the learner, and if he got an answer wrong, shock him up to a certain number. It was all fake, but the subject didn't know that. And the actor would go, ah, you know, you're killing me, or you know, whatever. And, um, and they found just, uh, he found that it was really shocking, for lack of a better word, how many people were willing to go all the way uh, to be obedient to authority. And he called that the agentic state that it was just as um, the, um, you know, during the Nuremberg trial, the excuse was I was just following orders. The subject would just follow the orders of the experiment administrator, who would be Milgram or, you know, when it was replicated, someone else. But uh, taking your responsibility and applying it to the agent who told you to go ahead, continue, and so on and so forth. So anyway, that was, that was really interesting. I, you know, I have a footnote, a long footnote in there about the, the whole issue with the ethics and all of that. But uh, interesting observation on human behavior. And then uh, you know, I looked at Noel Newman's Spiral of Silence and you know, all of these uh, conformity observations and experiments that really inform us about our behavior under social pressure. And we need to become a whole lot more aware. And you're right, Jan, nobody wants to consider themselves a conformist. That's yeah. right. Yeah. It's, I'm going to read something that uh, I actually found it so compelling. I, I kind of sent it out before my interview. I usually don't do that until I've got the interview in the bag, so to speak. But I'm going to read this. Okay. Um, you wrote, propagandists can also cultivate a bandwagon effect simply by dictating one narrative while shutting out all others. People tend to fall in line. There is a conformity impulse at play, which is often triggered and promoted through a bystander effect. When witnesses to social punishments such as shunning, humiliation, or firings due to wrong think remain silent, they do so to avoid the suffering themselves. The conformity impulse and the bystander effect work in tandem to produce mass compliance with the policies of oppressive regimes. Both are propped up by propaganda that directs the psychology of the masses, especially through popular culture. The reason I'm reading this right now is I think we've just kind of encompassed a lot of what we just talked about in this one few pithy lines, right, from your book. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah, I, I think we did. How is it that you've come to bring together a lot of disparate 
areas of interest like this. I mean, tell me a little bit about your background. Well, I, you know, I, I've been observing these kind of social dynamics ever since a child on the playground. I mean, I've been a, an observer of uh, these kinds of things that didn't really make sense to me as a teenager and then in college. Uh, you know, I would see these same patterns. Like, for example, uh, I worked for a while between undergraduate and graduate years as a uh, departmental secretary in a social science department at the university where I, you know, where I, I got my degrees. And, and you could see the faculty there, you know, how they would kind of swarm to get one member denied tenure or, uh, or fired or whatever. It was the same kind of process, you know, the same kind of, uh, you know, trying to get their political opponent or whatever, shunned and degraded and demonized. And in fact, I didn't mention that, demonization is the common denominator of all of this. That's what people are afraid of. Um, and uh, I'll, I'll get to that a little bit more in a minute. But then I got my graduate degree in Russian and Soviet history, and that just kind of tied it all together, especially studying Stalin's reign of terror, where people were so fearful of being um, you know, considered like an enemy of the people or whatever, that uh, it created a sort of mass hysteria where there was finger pointing even when you know, someone hadn't done anything against the regime or said anything, but people would start accusing others just because they were fearful of being accused themselves. So they wanted to be the, you know, the, the good guy who turns in, even if their neighbor was innocent, totally innocent of whatever it was, uh, turn them in. So, uh, and it's a kind of mass hysteria that you saw in Mao's Cultural Revolution, and you would see in all these radical utopian revolutions, going back to the French Revolution and earlier. This is kind of a roundabout way of giving you some of my background. Then I went on to work at the CIA as uh, an intelligence analyst focused on the Soviet Union. And uh, specifically, uh, I spent quite some time doing media analysis and propaganda analysis. And that's a lot of that's open source. I mean, you're reading Pravda and uh, you know all this one-party state propaganda. There was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of these crazy ideas that, of course, the population had no other uh, narrative. And so you'd see that, and I, 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 would, I thought more and more deeply about why is it that an entire population, a majority, can be controlled so easily by a minuscule, really minuscule, minority, and that, of course, they've got their whole uh, apparatchiks to you know, their whole apparatus through the bureaucracy to prop them up. That's really kind of my background. Then I, you know, I, I observed these things after I even left um, to raise a family. And then, of course, now I'm a senior contributor for The Federalist, have been for 10 years, and, and I've been writing mostly about these psychological manipulations and, and the cult mindset and groupthink. Those are the things that fascinate me the most because I think that's a common denominator of why we are where we are. You know, when people shut up about what they believe or they lie about what they believe, that creates, uh, I mean, this has a, a really negative effect on civil society.
So you're bringing up something that I thought was incredibly fascinating in here, which is this, the distinction between organic protest and the mob protest. Yes. Right? And they're actually cre formed differently, mm -hmm. which I hadn't really thought about. I thought sometimes you have protests, they can turn into a mob, something can set them off, mm -hmm. that's probably accurate. But there's actually a, a very, very different deliberate formation of the mob, much mm -hmm. as happened with the Red Guard, Mao deliberately formed these mobs that would go out and destroy the four olds. You, you detail that right. quite a bit in there. but. So tell me about this distinction and, and, and frankly, how you can even tell what mm -hmm. you're getting yourself into when you're seeing protests, because there's a lot of legitimate protests to be had. Yes. Um, and then there's also a lot of mob activity, it seems like, at the same time, and it can be difficult to know. Right. Well, I think the main difference between what I call astroturf mobs and legitimate organic protests is with these astroturf mobs, like you had with the Red Guard during Mao's Cultural Revolution, but uh, you, you, know, you see with Antifa today, I mean, they're not on the same scale, but it's the same dynamic. Those are in line often with the propagandistic narrative. And, and it also, the distinction also has to do with the level of risk. Uh, when you're in line with the media monopoly and the propaganda, you, you're, you, you can feel pretty safe. Like, remember that march that all these women had after the, you know, the Trump inauguration? They, there was no fear there. I mean, they had Hollywood stars and everyone involved in it. But if you look at, say, the Prague Spring of 1968, or, the, or what happened in Hong Kong, especially in 2019, and of course Tiananmen Square in 1989. Those protests, the people were acting on principle and you know, they weren't organized and, and they weren't protected at all. They did these things at enormous risk and uh, great personal risk and, and paid for it, many of them. But, uh, that, that's really the distinction, is the level of ri that, That's how you can tell, I think. Well, and no, absolutely. And from what we saw, right, at that time, you're talking about this, the march around Trump's inauguration, the protests around that. I think there were a lot of people that they were genuinely afraid for their lives. Oh, I, yeah. Right? Yeah, because they had, the, the, the propaganda really had that deep effect on them, those manipulations. Obviously, I can't speak for all these individuals, but uh, mobs tend to be made up of people who are atomized, uh, you know, isolated. They don't have strong familial bonds or strong bonds of friendship. I mean, they may say they have, and they become very fearful. I mean, you see that. Well, and you talk about in the book about how this repeated, um, repeated exposure by what can look like you know, a consensus of people because there's so many different pieces. Again, I'll go back to this concept of the megaphone. The megaphone has many different components that seem to all agree with one another. There's this susceptibility when that all-encompassing consensus seems to exist, right? To agreeing with the narrative and believing it, mm -hmm. right? To the point where you could fear, fear for your life. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, I find this deeply disturbing. Yes, dangerous. 
it's incredible. It's incredibly dangerous, but it's also, I mean, it's, I, I, I find it hard to imagine how to protect against that because if someone has been pulled into this somehow, how can you communicate with them? You're operating with a completely different set of, you know, what you consider to be reality. That's exactly right. right. No reality. That's what's at stake. And I think a lot of it is caused by, and this is just my opinion, but I think that susceptibility is caused by isolation. It's caused by atomization that uh, is rooted in a lot of policies that actually serve to isolate. Uh, policies that promote family breakdown or policies that promote addiction or policies that promote urban blight or, you know, all of these things that are extremely isolating. I mean, when children can't even learn basics in school, that in itself, I believe, ignorance is isolating. And, you know, all of these factors play into that. And when, you know, we kind of reach, as I said, an inflection point where uh, you do, you know, you do have so many of these people who are so far gone that, you know, you're right, you can't really reach them. Uh, the real solution has to do with relationships of trust and social trust. And how do you establish social trust when we've already lost so much of it? And uh, I think, you know, it's a matter of, I talk a little bit in the last chapter, um, you know, about uh, reaching out. It's about becoming more aware. And, and when, you, when I talk about outreach, Obviously, you can't, you can't do it with people who are really, really far gone, especially, you know, youth. It has to be people who are kind of teetering or, you know, that's how you, um, you, know, you reach out to people who are at least partly open to what you might have to say or to even a relationship or a conversation, you know, open to a conversation. That can be harder and harder to find these days, uh, but we have, to, we have to do it. We have to do what we can to turn this around. Uh, but you're right, it's very disturbing when you see these people really do believe their lives are at risk or, you know, like the world's gonna burn up in five years or, you know, all of this stuff right. plays into that, you know, that fear, that intense anxiety and does nothing to promote a civil society and to you know, keep us healthy and able to talk with one another. I think that's something everybody wants. It doesn't matter what your politics are. People want friends. People want family. They want strong relationships. Nobody wants to be lonely. And, and that's why what I call the weaponization of loneliness is so effective. It's such an effective tool of tyrants. You know, so many people have talked about or written about how isolation is used as a political weapon or the threat of isolation. And part of my goal was to put this all together in one place. And, and so, you know, you have a T Tocqueville, Carl Jung talked about it, uh, uh, Noel Newman, Robert Nisbet, uh, you know, so, so Hannah many. Arendt, of course. Which oh, Hannah Arendt. Earlier. I mean, she said the, the goal of all totalitarian or all tyrannical governments is to bring about isolation because people aren't terrorized as easily if they have strong bonds of relationships. And that's why the private sphere is um, such a target, has always been such a target 
of tyrants and totalitarians because that's where our power lies, our strength. That's, that's where we get the strength to deal with so much of you know, what comes at us in life. I'll, I'll read another thing you wrote here. Pretending to go along with a belief you don't actually hold creates a ripple effect. Mm -hmm. Okay, and then you, you cite some of this work done around what are called availability cascades. Mm -hmm. So just explain this to me. Yeah. Okay, and, and you know, conversely, that's true also. If you're willing to express what you believe, that creates a ripple effect in a very good way as well. Um, but the, the negative end of that is what you don't believe. So the availability cascade is a term that comes up in an article co-authored by Cass Sunstein, who was Obama's regulatory czar back in the second term, and uh, Timur Karan. Um, I, I think he's, he's a social psychologist or social economist. And what they explain is that create, you can create the illusion of a consensus on just about anything if people are uh, willing to either shut up about what they believe or express what they you know, just want to say. And he said, what I thought was really interesting, he said, it doesn't even matter how fringy a, an idea is. If you keep injecting it into public discourse, over and over and over again, you create this cascade of public opinion. And people will go along with it primarily for reputational reasons. Reputational is the term they were, use. I would say, you know, that fear of ostracism, that need to connect. Uh, but, you know, reputation is all tied up into that. And if you look at some of the absurdities that we're dealing with today, that's exactly what happened. There are, you know, there are certain issues that get injected time and again. I'll, you know, I keep coming back to transgender issue because that is so fascinating. By 2014, they, you know, came out with a big Time magazine cover, the transgender tipping point, and then of course, uh, what was it? Call me Caitlyn. Bruce Jenner, you know, had that big Vanity Fair uh, thing, and. You know, and he was a big star, he was an athlete. And, and so what you had there was this kind of intersection of popular culture and uh, Hollywood and, uh, you know, of course, a lot of academics and all of this piling on, injecting this idea into public discourse over and over and over again. So that's really all it took. And then people just kind of, oh, this is what I should believe. Yeah. And you know, TED Talks, that was another part of it. So uh, that's what avail availability cascade, it has to do with public opinion cascade. And it doesn't really matter what people really believe. It's all about what they say they believe. And they say they believe certain things quite often because they're fearful of, you know, how their reputation might be affected. They, they sense that megaphone you talk about around them. They sense that threat of ostracism if they go off script. This is a tough reality to deal with. And I don't know, I mean, I don't know what a really good way dealing with it as a society is, other than people individually having courage or understanding just to, to overcome that fear of ostracism for better or for worse. I don't think we can ever completely overcome it, 
but we need to regulate it. We need to understand it in order to, to have a society that's civil, in which we can have real conversations with people, not these, you know, dancing around sort of, oh, I'm so afraid I'm gonna, you know, say the wrong thing. Uh, obviously, you know, there's a certain extent to which we need to be aware of manners and courtesy and all of those good things. Um, but even manners and courtesy are coming under attack, you know, uh, in, in a lot of ways. But the weaponization of empathy is also interesting because that is something that Alinsky brought, brings up in his book, Rules for Radicals, that, that you have to basically, one of the rules is to use the, the goodwill of the middle class against them. And, and that is all part, that, that's another factor that feeds into the, the, you know, going along with a lot of these things. There are other factors as well. I think there's a certain complacency that our constitution would always be standing and we have this first amendment protecting us. It never occurred to us for many years that it, you know, free speech could come under direct attack, um, you know, under the guise of protecting us from misinformation. But, I mean, I believe that we were created for communion with God and with, for communion with other people. Um, that's how we were created. And in fact, the epigraph for my entire book is it is not good for man to be alone. And we know that very deeply in our hearts. We cannot function uh, and in, you know, in many cases can't even survive in a state of severe isolation. It's like solitary confinement. And, um, and it's as though with these technocratic uh, devices and everything, we're almost, it feels as though we're kind of being nudged into or uh, a kind of a, a, a virtual solitary confinement. But if we become aware of these things, you know, I, I mention in, at the end of the book, you know, ways to f fight this. And if we become aware of how these dynamics operate within us and around us, if enough people become aware. It doesn't have to be a huge majority of people. It's just, you know, maybe a minority, 5%, who kind of have that ripple effect going where they, you know, express themselves and they understand it. Uh, and I have a lot of ways, including the idea of a book club that I, um, you know, as a project of mine on this theme. There are so many books and articles and movies and documentaries that deal with this theme, although they don't say it. So, so Stella, just for the record, sign me up. Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah I'm in for that. Absolutely. Great. Great. Well, I'm in the process of that is the, you know, this one one way of doing that and, and, and just building an awareness of these dynamics because I believe that all destructive agendas depend on these dynamics that I write about. Uh, if, instead of playing whack-a-mole, with a thousand different uh, agendas and policies, I think if we could solve this, or if we can at least, you know, uh, make headway in defeating or dismantling what I call the machinery of loneliness, then uh, then a lot of everything else will fall into place. But otherwise, it's like a big game of whack-a-mole with all the other issues. But um, and then of course parallel institutions, and then there are many things that people can do just on their own that create ripple effects. But I'm gonna, I'm gonna jump in here because there's a couple of things that are just sort of obvious conclusions based on your work and you mentioned them as well. One is that the ability to have free discourse, the First Amendment mm -hmm. is critical. Absolutely. Like if, you, if that breaks down, then we no longer are able to have that 
community. All of these mechanisms, all of these mechanisms of control yes. suddenly become operative. Yes. So with all its flaws, with all its problems, you would argue this is inviolable. inviolable. It, has to, it has to stand. The other thing you mentioned, and this you, we started talk with this, I think, to some extent, um, the private sphere of life must continue to exist. And that's actually a huge problem because everything about our society is becoming public. What we, you know, what we buy, what we do. I mean, this device I'm holding is, is you know, collecting information on me as we speak, as we're doing this interview. This whole new generation has grown up without even realizing what privacy might actually look like, mm -hmm. right? Because there's, there's constant monitoring, there's cameras everywhere. There's this kind of general understanding. And there's even a survey I'm just remembering right now that was done where a lot of you know, young people would agree to having a camera in their home for their own safety, right? Yeah. I mean, it's, 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 kind of, it's incredible. We, we have to stop that. Otherwise, you know, like our humanity might be at stake. I think, wouldn't yeah. you argue that? Oh yeah, yeah. no, privacy yeah. is one of what I consider uh, the conditions of having a civil society. Uh, you can't have, I mean, without privacy, there can be no intimacy. I mean, if you think about it, friendship is based on the ability to have a confidence with someone. Mm -hmm. Confidence, I mean, what the word comes from with, right? Con fidelis or whatever, loyalty. Uh, the, the idea that there's a bond there that you know, shouldn't be broken. And that's how relationships develop. And without that, we become atomized. And that's what we have to fight against. So privacy is absolutely uh, imperative, and, and as is cultural memory. You know, we're not uh, getting, uh, you know, children especially are not uh, getting uh, what they need in terms of understanding our history and, uh, and their own history or genealogies, all of that. So cultural memory, privacy, uh, imagination and virtue are the four conditions that I mentioned for a civil society to exist. And of course, with the invasions of privacy all around us, technologically and in so many other ways, uh, that's definitely at stake. I mean, that's definitely endangered. In Poland, there was this there was this view of the dissidents, right? The view of the dissidents was live as if you were free. Yes. And I find that really interesting because you can do that. I mean, we live in a with with everything that's happening. This is still a much freer society than probably just about anywhere else. Mm -hmm. And that's something I always like our viewers to remember mm -hmm. as much as there's a lot of encroachment on those freedoms mm -hmm. as we speak. That remains the case. And you can live as if you are free, whether or not you think you're free. That's <laughs> so right. So we don't even need to debate that. That, that is a beautiful prescription straight from you know, Poland uh, under communism, basically, and how, how you can, how to carry yourself, how to think about things, how to, how to create a kind of a, 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 an honest, honorable resistance, if you will, to mm -hmm. whatever you perceive to be the problem. And you know, there might be punishments involved, or there definitely, you know, uh, I think Havel said uh, when he talked about the greengrocer, uh, you know, he might lose his job, or, you know, by living as if he's free, taking down that banner, you know, workers of the world unite, everybody's going to notice it, but he will have done something amazing. When you live as if you are free, you pull back the curtain, as Havel said, and you show others that it is possible to live within the truth. As much as you know, the oppressors would want to make it almost impossible for you to do that, 
we can do it. There might be punishment, but you know, I think the cost of not doing it is far greater. And that, of course, is what every tyrant or totalitarian is fearful of. It's quite possible that these people who are trying to lord it over everyone else, these social engineers and everything, are the ones most impacted and most fearful of, of loneliness and, and susceptible to that fear. Uh, but that's a subject for another book, you know, to start psychoanalyzing them. But uh, it is important, I think, to start thinking about, uh, definitely, it's late in the day to do it, but we have to do it. Uh, to start thinking about these dynamics that make all of these destructive agendas possible. And the destructive agendas are really the default, I fear, but I think that's the case, the default position. Um, you know, what, what we're living in the United States, you know, with our Constitution and First Amendment is really miraculous in the course of all human history. If you take that First Amendment away, you know, it, it, it all falls apart, as you said, right? Mm -hmm. So we're, we're living a real miracle and, uh, you know, we, we want to keep it in place. And like you said, that the First Amendment's non-negotiable. It's not negotiable. It's what allows us to even have a private sphere of life. Stella, this has been an absolutely fascinating conversation. Any, a final thought as we finish? Well, I guess that was my final thought, is not to, you know, to understand that the war is ancient, this war against oppression or totalitarianism. And it, it's, it's, it's constant, and it's, uh, it's something we have to just be aware of, we can never fall into complacency about it. You know, we need to respect our freedom and respect the right to live as if we are free, even if we don't think we are. Well, Stella Morabito, it's such a pleasure to have had you on. Oh, it's been a pleasure talking to you, Jan. Thank you all for joining Stella Morabito and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Jan Jekielek. Thank you.